I, I think you would probably agree with me that Jesus was a, a pretty good guy. I mean, amazing person who still influences the world years later. His teachings are the foundation of our moral and ethical behavior. He was a remarkable man who cared for the poor and the disenfranchised. He encouraged people. He challenged hypocrisy. He berated the abuse of power. As a person, just a regular guy, his likability factor was off the charts. He's just a plain old good guy. But is that where it ends? Is that all he is? Is that all he was? My innocence was shattered my senior year of high school. I had just become a Christ follower a few months earlier. And one morning during an English class, our literature discussion took us to some literature that had biblical references. And so our literature discussion wound up becoming a theological debate. And in the moment, uh, and it surrendered, it centered around the person of Jesus. And my, uh, my very well-respected English teacher stepped into the debate and offered her opinion. And it, it kind of shocked all of us because she was a, a well-respected Sunday school teacher at one of the largest churches in town. And in her comments, she inferred that she believed Jesus was a good man, but that's it. She didn't believe he was divine. She didn't believe he was the Messiah. She didn't believe he was the Son of God. So I raised my hand and, and I said, please don't take this personally, but I, I'm really confused right now. I'm new to this following Jesus thing. Yeah, I've been around church all of my life, but I've never, I never really had a relationship with him till just a few months ago. And when I met Jesus, he changed my life. And I just assumed this early on in following Jesus that if you were a Sunday school teacher, you believed what the Bible said about Jesus. And she chuckled at my innocence and said, I do believe that Jesus' teachings are the best moral instruction we can live by. I believe that it is worth our efforts to study the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus because if we all lived by them, the world would be a better place. But I don't believe he was divine. I don't believe he was a son of God or anything like that. I sat there in my naivety and I was stunned at her well-intentioned comments. Not because I didn't have friends and people in my life that didn't believe in the biblical Jesus. It was just that this woman was a leader in a conservative denominational church in my community. And she believed that Jesus was a good man and a wise teacher. But that was kind of it. Jesus claimed to be divine. Came out of his mouth. He claimed to be the Son of God on multiple occasions. So how could his statements on morality have any integrity if he claimed to be something that he wasn't? It was a conundrum for me then, still is for me today. How can somebody believe Jesus gave us the greatest moral code that we could possibly live by, and yet he claimed to be something that he wasn't? C.S. Lewis calls it a trilemma. It's a dilemma. We would call it a dilemma. But C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it a trilemma because he says you have one of three options when you look at Jesus. And he said everybody faces this trilemma because all of us are going to have to make a clear-cut choice on who we really believe Jesus is. And as you face this trilemma, you have three decisions. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. But a good man is not an option. 
Because a person who claimed to be God's son could never be good if he wasn't what he claimed. He would have had to have been lying. He would have had to have been totally crazy. Or he would have had to have been what he said he was. But just a good man is not an option. As you read through this week, the 25th chapter of the story, and if you're new with us today, we have copies of it. It's just a chronological rendering of Scripture from all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and we're journeying through it all year long as a church family. This week, we were on chapter 25, Selections of the New Testament, and as we read through the Gospels in these selections today, uh, this for this today, for this week, um, we found out that there are several places where Jesus made assertions that he was more than a good man and more than a wise teacher. From the moment he came on the scene, this question of his identity, who was he really, who is Jesus, became the focal point of history at that moment, and it still is a focal point of history 2,000 years later. Wars have been fought around the answer to that question, who is Jesus? Parents have disowned their children because they accepted Jesus, or they have, uh, they have disowned their children because they have rejected Jesus. So today, I want us to look at the massive implications of your answer to a few of the questions that the scripture asks us about the identity of Jesus. I want us to look at three different conversations that happen in three different cities. In each of these conversations, something comes up regarding the identity of Jesus. The first city is Caesarea Philippi. And in that particular city, Jesus has a conversation where he asks the people in the conversation, who am I? That's the main question in the city of Caesarea Philippi. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he is taking his disciples for an extended stay in the Gentile area, which is a non-Jewish area of Caesarea Philippi. It was well beyond the borders and territory where, where most of his ministry had occurred up to that point. The reason he is taking them outside the norm is because he is trying to get them to understand he's going to Jerusalem, the religious leaders are going to arrest him, they're going to torture him, and he's going to die. And he's trying to get his disciples to understand that. He takes them outside the normal context to Caesarea Philippi to explain it. Jesus could not have picked a better place to ask the question, who am I, than Caesarea Philippi. Because Caesarea Philippi was to religion what Walmart is to shopping. Every conceivable variety was in one place. It was a cross-section of all religious claims in Jesus' day. The city was located north of Galilee in a region known as Panion, which was named after uh, the Greek god of Pan. And many generations before Greek mythology came on the scene, there was the Baal worship that happened. And during the Assyrian occupation, there were all of these altars created in deities to the Syrian gods. This place was infested with idols and every kind of known deity. There were earthly rulers that claimed to be divine. There were Greek mythologies. Logical gods, and Jesus takes his disciples in the middle of all of these idols and he asks the question, Who do people say that I am? There was a flurry of answers at first. Some say Elijah, they said. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. But then Jesus shifts gears and he makes it personal in Matthew 16, verse 15. But what about you? He said, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And I want you to notice the answer, that the way Peter responds, the son of the 
living God. You see, Jesus is teaching in Caesarea Philippi where there's this backdrop to every idol. Uh, this rock over here is a God. This tree over here is a God. There's a bronze statue to this God, a silver statue to that. There's a little bitty gold idol set up over there. In the middle of all of these inanimate deities, Peter says to him, you are the living God. In Matthew six seventeen, the conversation continues. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, Son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you. Simon, son of Jonah, is also the apostle Peter's name at that moment. That's, so, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, but my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not come against it. When Jesus says on this rock, the rock is the revelation of his identity. On the bedrock truth that Jesus is the son of the living God. You said it, Peter. And upon this bedrock truth of my identity as the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. The foundation of my church is going to be that truth. And Jesus goes on in verse 19 to tell Peter, I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. You say, what does that mean? To have keys to the kingdom of heaven. God, Jesus, was giving Peter the privilege of introducing people, inviting people into, and using those keys to open the door for people to come into the kingdom of God. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right after Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter preaches his first gospel message. And in that message, he invites Jewish people who were standing around to be saved, to come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and enter into the kingdom. He is using the keys that the Lord has given him. Later, he preaches to a group of non-Jews and invites all of them to come into the kingdom of God. He is given keys to invite, to open the door and bring people into relationship with God through Jesus. He can share that message because he has keys of the kingdom. Now, if Jesus is the son of God, to simply refer to him as a good man or a wise teacher borders on the verge of an insult. But Jesus had this curious habit everywhere he went of always declaring his deity. One of his favorite designations people overlook as a claim to deity was calling himself the son of man. He loved to refer to himself in the third person as the son of man. And there was a reason for that. Eighty times in the gospel accounts you read the phrase son of man. Seventy-nine of those times it is in reference of Jesus in the third person speaking to himself. And when we hear the son of man we think well he's just identifying with our humanity. And when he says that and there is truth to that statement. But we don't understand referring to himself as the son of man is also a claim to his deity. He says it in several places. Luke 9 58. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Mark 12 36. They will see the son of man coming in the clouds. Luke 9 22, The son of man must suffer many things. That phrase son of man sounds like a humble human title. But understand the significance. Rewind back a few hundred years till you get to the book of Daniel. Long before Jesus came. Daniel wrote a prophecy. He had a vision about the Messiah. And he wrote it down in Daniel 7. This is what the Messiah is going to look like when he comes. Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming 
with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It is a messianic prophecy referred to the Son of Man. This is all written as a description so that every time Jesus says to his disciples or any crowd, the son of man this or the son of that, when he calls himself the son of man, he is saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am that guy that Daniel prophesied about. Now people make all sorts of outlandish claims and you hear them all the time. People will brag and say something about themselves and you may overhear it and be by a friend and look over and say, is he serious? He really believed that about himself? Does she really think she's that? And we, I imagine there were some of those same kind of conversations that happened around Jesus' day. You, 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 you hear those statements and it brings into question the credibility of the person that's making them. Reminds me of just a few weeks ago, I was with a, a friend, Dan Betzer, who pastors a, a great church in Fort Myers, Florida, and he was telling a story again that I'd heard him tell before about um, uh, an incident that happened in his church. He was in his office getting ready for church on Sunday morning, and one of his ushers came running into the building and said, Pastor, we've got a problem. And he said, what's a problem? He said, we got a man walking through the foyer of the church claiming to be Jesus. And he said, what do you want me to do about it? He said, I mean, what do you mean, what is he? He said, Pastor, he rode here in a white robe on a moped, and he parked in the front of the building, and he's walking through the foyer claiming to be Jesus. And they said, what do you want us to do about it? Now, you have to understand, Pastor Betzer's church is a very refined church. There is a lot of order. Things don't kind of get out of order, and those ushers are trained. And so this was kind of messing everything up for a man to be in there claiming to be Jesus. And, and, and you've got a moped Jesus, and he's walking around and claiming to speak healing on people walking through the foyer. And they said, Pastor, what do you want us to do about it? And just to shake him up a little bit, he said, leave him alone. He may be Jesus. <laughs> I asked Pastor Betzer, I said, uh, what do you do? He said, the moped Jesus still comes to church every Sunday. Rides his moped, wears his right robe, sits in my pew every Sunday. Takes all kinds to make the kingdom work. People, people make some outlandish claims. They say strange things and we roll our eyes and say, that guy's got some serious issues. He's got some problems. And I'm sure that's what people thought about Jesus in his day. But the more they examined his life, the more they heard him speak, the more they saw the way he loved, the more they realized there was something to this man. And there was. I love the gospel of John. I love the way John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his writing, makes the divinity of Jesus clear. John records seven I am statements of Jesus. Maybe you've heard some of them. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. There are five more. And each of these seven I am statements is an incident of Jesus proclaiming his divinity. Those seven I am statements correlate with seven miracles that John records Jesus performed showing us that Jesus backed up what he said. He claimed to be God and he can do anything from changing water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead. And then John goes on from seven I am statements to seven miracles that back it up. He records the response of seven eyewitnesses to the identity of Jesus. And like whether it's Nathaniel he writes about or doubting Thomas that eventually says to Jesus, you are the son of God. 
Maybe Jesus' boldest assertion is recorded in John about his divinity. John 8, 58, he says this. Before Abraham was born, I am. What's that supposed to mean? What was he trying to say? He was identifying himself with the same statement that God used when he introduced himself to Moses as the burning bush. Remember, early on in our study of the story, we talked about it. God speaks to Moses right before he leads Moses to deliver the nation out of Egyptian bondage. He speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and Moses says, Who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh that sent me? And God says to Moses, Tell him, tell Pharaoh, I am, that's my name, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, he was saying to all of his hearers who knew that Moses story, I am the same I am that spoke I am out of the bush to Moses. He's saying, I am God. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin. A privilege only God can exercise. He claimed to be greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham. He said one time he was greater than John the Baptist. He declared one day that he was greater than the Sabbath. He said he was greater than the temple. He said that his words would outlive heaven and earth. He one time said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I mean, man, that is, that's pretty arrogant unless it's true. It's arrogant unless it's true. It's completely arrogant unless all of our eternity hinges on what we believe about Him. And if it's true and He didn't tell us and our eternity hinges on what we do with the answer to that question, then not telling us would be cruel. It's arrogant unless it's true. There's a second question that comes up about his identity in a town called Bethany. It's in this town Jesus doesn't simply ask the question, he infers it with the conversation. He's trying to get the people to understand his purpose for coming to earth. Why am I here? Why did I leave heaven? Why was I born of a virgin? Why was I robed in human flesh? Why am I, if I'm God, why am I walking among you? Why am I here? You read this story this week in the 25th chapter of the story and you found out that Jesus had a number of close friends. He loved everybody but there were some people that you see him interacting with in the gospels again and again and one of those is this guy named Lazarus who has two sisters Mary and Martha and the Bible gives us several glimpses into their family life. They lived in Bethany. It was a couple of miles away from Jerusalem and in one particular place Jesus was not in Bethany. He was performing ministry somewhere else and Lazarus came became very ill and he was on the verge of dying and so they sent messengers to Jesus saying your friend Lazarus is dying and they just assumed that here he is healing all of these strangers if you get word Jesus that your best friend one of your closest friends is dying you're going to come and do something about it but Jesus didn't come matter of fact he didn't get there until four days after Lazarus had died and there's a little hurt okay In Mary and Martha's life because they've watched Jesus. I mean, they believe in him. They know what is possible in his life. They've seen it up close and they're bothered by how could you be so close to our family and heal people that you don't even know like you know us and not come for our brother. This is a really raw conversation in John 11. You see this profound belief with 
Martha, she has this amazing belief in Jesus, but you hear the hurt in her heart. John eleven twenty one. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She believes in his power. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who was coming to the world. I know why you came. I know why you're here. Now, after that conversation with Martha, the other sister, Mary, she was inside. She didn't hear that. So she comes out, sees Jesus. She's angry too. She runs up to Jesus, makes the same assertion that Martha did. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary realized the power of Jesus. Most of us know what happened. Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. And when we tell this story, we usually focus on the most dramatic moment of the story. Where this olive-skinned Jewish man that we call Lord put his hands over his mouth, faced Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, this man that had been decomposing for four days, gets up, walks out. And that's what we focus on. And that might be the most dramatic part of the story, but it's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story is his response to the sister's questions in verse 25 of John 11. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Lazarus come forth had powerful implication for one man. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, has implications for all of us. Lazarus come forth was the most dramatic moment of the story, but I am the resurrection and the life was the most important statement of the story. Jesus in this moment, in this conversation, is answering the question, why am I here? Why did I come? He's answering the question in his action. I left heaven and earth. I came here so that you can have life. I'm the resurrection and the life. You can have abundant life while you're here on earth when you follow me, when you believe in me, and you can have eternal life after death when you believe in me. In both of these locations, Caesarea Philippi and in Bethany, Jesus has tried, if you read the story in both of these places, Jesus has tried to let his disciples know that... uh, I'm going to eventually go to Jerusalem, and when I go to Jerusalem, they're going to put me to death. But they didn't fully understand what he kept saying. They, they couldn't imagine with a man this much power and this much authority being put to death by the religious leaders or the Romans. And so they didn't know if he was speaking figuratively or literally. And while he's trying to get them to understand this in Caesarea Philippi and Bethany, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are plotting to take Jesus out because they didn't see him as a good man at all. He was a charlatan to them. He was a magician to them. He was a peasant to them. He was a blasphemer to them. He needed to pay for his outlandish claims of being a Messiah. And they wanted him to pay with his life. And we know from the rest of the story, he did pay with his life. But what we need to understand, it didn't happen because of the desires of the Jewish leaders. He paid with his life because he was willing to die for our sins. I want to talk more about that next week. 
I want you to listen to this. Listen to how the religious leaders justified murdering Jesus. John eleven forty nine. 49. It says, one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. What was happening, the Jewish people were, uh, the Jewish land was occupied by the Roman Empire. And there was all of this chaos and disorder that was surrounding Jesus. And they were afraid the Roman military was going to see the chaos, come and squash all of the chaos, and just destroy the entire Jewish people that were a part of the Roman Empire. And so they thought the only way to keep the whole nation from being destroyed is to get rid of the one rabble-rouser that is causing all of the problem. And so it was no secret. People knew They were after Jesus. People knew they wanted to arrest him and they wanted to kill him. And so that was word on the street. So it would have been the perfect time. Anybody with any sense to avoid conflict, if they were trying to avoid it, would have known at that moment, get out of the public eye. It was a perfect time for Jesus to say, we're going to let this situation simmer. We're going to go to a quiet place. We're going to go to a secret place. And if you had been one of his followers or advisors, you would have said to him, hey, how about no public teaching for a few weeks? Let's let this blow over and let this thing, let's just stay put and let all of this arrest talk and and crucifixion talk, let's just let all of that go by the wayside. But Jesus, knowing all of that was there, the environment was toxic, that his life was on the line, he went to Jerusalem anyway because he knew what had to happen in order to save the world. So Matthew 10, 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen to how clear this is. We are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be betrayed over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Those details are one more bold assertion that he is validating his deity. Back in that day, it was very customary that when a king was riding into a new town or a new village and it was a time of war, he would ride a powerful steed or a stallion in order to show his authority. When a king was riding into a new town or a new village during a time of peace and he wanted to show peace, he would ride on a donkey. So Matthew 21, 7 says, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is the way they rolled out the red carpet in that day for dignitaries. The crowd went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. A little later in the passage in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15 says, But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Do you realize what they're saying about you? They're calling you God. Are you going to stop them? If you don't and you accept those assertions, this is blasphemy to think that you are God. 
Do you hear what these children are saying? They ask him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth praise? So just like that, Jesus quotes the book of, from the Psalms and explains to the teachers of the law why the children are saying it because they recognize what the leaders don't. He is God. John's gospel gives us another insight into this conversation in Jerusalem when the religious leaders told Jesus, you're going to be a blasphemer if you don't silence these people and keep them from calling you a God. And Jesus said, if they don't worship me, the stones will cry out and worship me. He's not pulling any punches, folks. He believed he was God. There's no way around it. He can't just be a good man. Everywhere you turn, he's making assertions, I am God. He was a man on a mission. The time had come for him to force the hand of the religious leaders and political leaders time and again. Everywhere he went, especially in Jerusalem, he's driving home the point, I'm not just a good man, I'm I'm a king. I'm claiming to be the Messiah. And he is forcing everyone, everywhere he goes, to make a decision about his identity. And the religious leaders disagreed with him. And they put him to death. Back in 1980, Rosie Ruiz competed in the Boston Marathon. She didn't just compete in the marathon. She cheated in the Boston Marathon. You might remember the story. She started off running in the marathon and she ran ways and had calculated her spot. She jumped into an alleyway to hide, watched her watch, thought she had calculated the time really well and she was going to jump back in at the end of the race, run the last mile. That's what she did. She ran that last mile, came across the finish line breathing like she had ran 26.2 miles and she's standing there trying to catch her breath and a very wily, wise old reporter walked up to her and stuck a microphone in her mouth and said, Madam, you are either the fastest woman on the face of the earth or you are a fraud when it comes to Jesus he is either God's son who conquered death or he is a fraud he successfully pulled off the greatest hoax of all time or he is who he says he is but the good man thing is not an option he cannot be a good man and be a liar about his identity he was either a liar he was crazy or he's the son of God. So in Caesarea Philippi, he said, who am I? Who do you say that I am? In Bethany, he said, do you really know why I came? Do you know that I came to be the resurrection and the life so that those that believe on me would, even if they die, they're going to live again? In Jerusalem, The question he asked everybody about his identity. Now what's your response? Because you can't stay in the middle on this deal. I mean, mean, it's, uh, it's, it's either one or the other. He either is or he isn't. And if he is, to play with that reality and not come to a decision about it one way or another is like playing roulette with eternity. What's your response? Larry King, who I believe to be a Jewish, I believe Larry's a Jewish man, was interviewed by Bryant Gumbel a number of years ago. And Bryant Gumbel asked Larry King this question, if you could ask God one question, Larry, what would it be? And Larry King said, I would ask him 
did you really have a son? Because if you did, it would make all the difference in the world. He did, and it does. Peter makes a confession at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And from that moment, down through the ages, all over the globe, millions of people have decided to cross the line of faith, get out of the middle of this good man thing, and make the declaration that the Apostle Peter made, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We've had dozens of people in the last few weeks make that declaration as they've crossed the line of faith and became a follower of Jesus in just the last several weeks. And it's going to happen today. In one of our services, on one of our campuses, in the many opportunities today, somebody is going to feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on their heart and they're going to stop running from Jesus. They're going to realize that there is a decision to be made about His identity and they're going to feel this undeniable pull in their heart. And today's going to be the day of salvation for them. They're going to say, Jesus is the Messiah. My Messiah. The Son of the living God. My Lord, my Savior. And that's what it comes back to. Is He my Lord? Is He my Savior? We can have all this association with religion. We can have all this knowledge. But is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? Because if He is, it'll change your life. And eventually, what He does to change your life internally will begin having ramifications for you in every area of your life. Can I just say something? This is more to you that have been serving God for a long time. You've been been churched your whole life. You can't hardly remember the day you got saved because most of your life you've been serving God. As a pastor, my heart has been troubled. Not just within our own congregation, but at the state of Christianity in our nation. I'm burdened when I see people who have a profession in their mouth, but for some reason don't have that much of a desire in their hearts to let their lives back up the profession of their mouth. I really felt challenged this week before I finished the sermon. And, and I, really, I really believe the Holy Spirit is tugging the hearts of people who need to cross the line of faith today. Those that have been away, those that have been disengaged, or those that have never known Jesus need to have some decision about His identity. But my heart is also burdened for those of us that are mature, we're seasoned, we've been Christ followers for a long time, and yet we allow things in our life that we know we probably should have matured past. The compromise in the lives of seasoned Christians undermines the integrity of what Jesus said about himself. Gandhi said, I don't have a problem with your Christ. I have a problem with your Christians. I wonder, is is our life, our choices, 
Is it backing up the profession? I understand grace. I understand that God gives us time. And there are some of us in this room that are baby Christians. And the process of being made into the image of Jesus takes a long time. And sometimes we make a lot of, we make a lot of, of, of gains. And then we'll, have, we'll take two steps forward and have five steps back. I understand. All of us do that. But there are some of us that have been in this thing for 20 years. And our lives still look like they did the day we first got saved. And there is an expectation when you come to Jesus that what he's doing on the inside of you, that you allow him to live that life through you. John said in 1 John 2, 5, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Some of us aren't baby Christians anymore, but we're using that as an excuse. The compromise in our lives undermines the integrity of what Jesus said about himself. I want to challenge us all today. I want you to search your heart as a seasoned believer. Paul preached this message of grace, and then he followed that up with saying, This message of grace is not a license for you to go on sinning. And we'll never, we will never live a victorious, overcoming life of righteousness without allowing Jesus to live his life through us. And maybe some of us just need to give up, quit trying to do it on our own because that hadn't worked, and ask God to empower us with that grace to live his life through us, to think his thoughts to replace ours that aren't holy, to, to speak words through us, to, to, to change the way we use our words, to, to live his life through us. If you're, a, if you're not a Christian here today and you're, you're kind of seeking faith, and one of the reasons you've been slow to committing your life to Christ is because you have watched Christians live lives that are not too different than yours, can I apologize for that? Some of them may have just been having a bad day. We all do. We all blow it. I blow it. I've been a bad example. Some of them may just not understand that when God changes you on the inside, over time, it has impact on what happens externally. And so if their actions, my actions, have kept you, don't let our misrepresentation of what Jesus said keep you from Him. Because we're not perfect. He is. Let me challenge you. I believe the Holy Spirit is tugging the hearts of people who are away from God. The Holy Spirit is tugging the hearts of people who never committed their lives to Him to step across that line and make a decision. Say what the Apostle Peter said. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It'll change your life. But as a pastor, I feel the Holy Spirit tugging on my coat. Challenge believers to surrender their lives and ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the grace. If if you've struggled as a believer and haven't lived up to the name, there's grace for that. This is not a shame message. There is grace for that. But acknowledge it. Be honest about it. And say, God, would you empower me to live a life that reflects Christ follower. 
I want you to bow your heads with me all over this place. And I just want you to search your hearts. In the presence of the Lord today, we have a few minutes to just contemplate this very decisive word. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's what he asked in Jerusalem. What are you going to do with Jesus? There's no middle ground here. He either is or he isn't. If he is, it has implications for the rest of your life. And if he is and you haven't said he is, why? If he's dealing with your heart today, don't delay. As you contemplate this moment, I promise you I won't embarrass you. I want to pray for you, but I will not embarrass you. You say, Pastor, I'm not following Jesus. I've never known him. Or I've walked away, been disengaged with him for years. And today, I want to walk across that line. I want to be marked as a Christ follower today. Before God and man. I want to give my life to Jesus. If that's you, would you slip your hand high enough to let me see it? I promise you I won't embarrass you, but I want to pray for you. Hold it up. Thank you for your honesty. Anybody else? I'm just, just going to wait just a moment because I believe he's calling us today to make a decision about who he is. Amen. Thank you for your honesty. Anybody else? Would you stand with me, everybody, all over this place, if you will? Prayer team, would you make yourself available today? Please come prepare to serve the body today. We're going to open these altars this morning and make them a time of repentance for all of us. The Apostle Peter wrote in his letter, I believe the first letter, Judgment must first begin at the house of God. That means for those of us that have, God deals with our hearts a lot of times first. And maybe if there's some discrepancy in our profession, some misalignment between our profession and our lives, this is the moment of grace to say, God, forgive me. Will you empower me with your grace to live a life I'm not capable of living? Live your life through me. Whether in your seat or whether you come kneel and pray in the front, this is a moment I pray that you spend time reflecting on. For those of you who make a decision to follow Jesus today, I challenge you, come pray with one of these people at the front of this church. Tell them, I I made a decision today. I want to cross that line. I I want to be a Christ follower. Pray with me. They're ready to do that. If you need a miracle of any sorts, you need to pray, you need a breakthrough in any area of your life, we believe Jesus is who He says He is and things happen when His people pray. So these altars are open for us to pray with you about any area where you need God to miraculously break into your life. Let us pray with you. We believe He can. We believe He will. And we stand ready to pray with you about it. After the altar time, I'll be meeting with people in the guest reception area. But that is on the bottom of importance to this, if this is where you need to be this morning. Father, I pray that you'll bless them. 
and that you'll keep them. That you'll make your face shine down upon them. That you'll be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction. Give them peace today. Help them settle the issue in their heart once and for all. Who is Jesus? How does that impact my life? In Jesus' name, amen. These altars are open. If God's dealing with you, don't hurry out. God bless.